as we think about building in cities where we're building vertically and the rooftop area is so much smaller than the glazed area on the uh, walls of the building. We did a quick analysis on Salesforce Tower and we calculated that if you glazed all of the glass on Salesforce Tower in San Francisco, you have 700 times the surface area that you would have available to you for rooftop solar. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to the 55th episode of Business for Good. Thanks so much to everybody who contacted the show via our website, businessforgoodpodcast.com, to tell us about how inspired you were by the last episode with Chris Bryson, the entrepreneur-turned-investor and philanthropist after his successful exit from his own company. So if you didn't listen to that after listening to this one, go back and check out Chris Bryson's inspirational tale. I can assure you it is worth the time to listen. Now, on to this episode. We may hear a lot these days about solar power and renewable energy, but sadly, our civilization is still voraciously addicted to fossil fuels. Even in a technologically advanced country like America, nearly all or about 90% of the energy that we use still comes from non-renewable sources. This not only causes serious environmental damage to extract all of it from the earth, but it's also a leading cause of climate change that's just driving countless species to extinction, including possibly even our own species if we don't get our act together. The effort to collect energy from the sun's rays has come a long way but it's still largely dependent on finding roof space or large tracts of land to put pretty, frankly, unappealing blue-gray solar panels there. But what if we could collect solar energy through crystal clear film that we could affix to virtually any surface, including the windows of your home or even a skyscraper? By making it possible to invisibly turn outdoor objects like windows into solar energy collecting devices, we could transform the ways our cities and homes get their power. And that is exactly what Ubiquitous Energy is seeking to do. This startup has raised $30 million so far to commercialize technology that started in an MIT lab, and it uses invisible film placed on windows to harvest solar energy. And we've got their CEO, Susan Stone, on this episode to tell us all about it. I'm particularly excited about this innovation since it doesn't look like humanity's energy needs are gonna subside anytime soon. If anything, we're gonna need more power, not less. That's why innovations like ubiquitous energies are so important since they allow us to have our energy and eat it too, or maybe to have our energy and heat our homes too. With that, I now bring you Susan Stone, CEO of Ubiquitous Energy. Susan Stone, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thanks, Paul. I'm really happy to be here. It is my pleasure to have you. In fact, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you were actually not our first episode about glass. Did you know that we did an earlier episode, about 50 episodes actually, on Ornolux? Have you heard of them? They're the bird-friendly glass. You know, I've heard of bird-friendly glass, but not of Ornolux, but that gives me lots of joy that you already have talked about glass. So we're not starting from the beginning. We are not starting from the beginning, but this is now the second way in which glass may end up saving the world. So yeah, Ornolux is a a really cool company. It's a division of um, Arnold Glass, this German company that uh, has developed a glass with a UV um, spray on the exterior of it that birds can see so they won't fly into it. And um, you know, it's a big problem. Uh, There are literally billions of birds who perish by flying into windows every year. So it's not not a small issue. 
But there's lots of other ways that glass might end up saving the world. And we're going to talk about one today. So before we do that, though, Susan, before we get into what ubiquitous energy is doing, um, let's first talk about just how conventional solar panels work, because at least before this episode, I, I really didn't know how they worked. So I knew it's like this blue gray panel that allegedly is like harvesting the sun and doing something with it. But how does it work? And then afterwards, we can talk about why what you're doing is better. Sure. Um, I think the simplest way to think about how conventional solar works, when we talk about conventional solar, we talk about opaque solar because our solar is transparent. When you think about those typical solar panels that you see out in you know, these utility scale solar farms or on your roof for folks that have installed solar at their houses, that opaque solar is harvesting as much of the light as possible across the visible and non-visible spectrum, taking that, typically it's using silicon, and turning that into electricity. I mean, that's the, that's the fundamental basic of it. Um, what we do that's different is we selectively harvest only the non-visible light. Other than that, the technologies are virtually identical. Um, we're still using the sunlight to make electricity, and we're just doing it by harvesting a little bit less of the spectrum. So tell us about the spectrum. For somebody who doesn't know, you're talking about non-visible light. So, you know, just pretend I have no idea what that even means. What are the types of light that are in the sun rays that are hitting our eyes? Well, if you go back to kind of the classic way that you learn about colors and light when you're a kid, you learn about the colors of the rainbow. And I remember learning that Roy G. Biv uh, so mm -hmm. that we would remember all of the different colors within the spectrum. When you get to that end of the spectrum, we talk about violet, and then you start to go to ultraviolet and infrared and near-infrared, those are the non-visible light in the spectrum. Uh, the rest is the colors, red, yellow, blue, uh, green. Those are the, the colors of the visible light spectrum. Um, but okay. what we talk about and what we harvest are in that beyond the end of the rainbow, uh, beyond violet, when we get to ultraviolet and, uh, and infrared. You know, it's funny, Susan, this is uh, Roy G. Biv uh, virtually never comes up in my life, but this is the <laughs> second time this week it has come up because I was actually talking with a colleague of mine who is uh, grew up in Israel. And so he, you know, was never taught that since he didn't learn in English, obviously. Um, and I was telling him about Roy G. Biv. So I'm glad that you are bringing it up here. Um, but so basically what ubiquitous energy is doing is harvesting that light, which the human eye can't see. And before we get into that, which is a, a very uh, interesting invention and really cool to think about, let's just talk about solar and, and renewables in general, because I, I think a lot of folks, when they consider renewables, they think that we're further along than we actually are in terms of, you know, what percentage of the energy that we are using in America or even in the world is coming from them. So can we talk a little bit about that first? Like how much energy are we using that's coming from solar or other renewables right now? You know, that's a great question. And I wish I had less specific answer for you on, you know, what percentage of the U.S. Um, that's a statistic that I should have. And I don't. Um, it tends to be really regional. And I think that's something that is a really interesting and unique problem in here in the United States is that we have a, a patchwork of energy sources. And depending on who you're, if you're taking energy from the grid, depending on who your provider is, you can get some information from your utility about how much of your 
personal electricity is coming from renewables. And it depends on the region. Here in California, it tends to be higher than in some other places. And that's Mm -hmm. because of legislation. And um, that has its pros and cons. Um, But unless you're someone who has installed solar, perhaps at your own house, you're really limited to the renewable energy portfolio that your particular utility has. And that varies across the country. Well, since you don't have it at the tip of your fingers, I do have the luxury of having Google in front of me. (laughs) And so I'll tell you that according to the U.S. government, um, this is from the website of the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which I didn't even know existed, but it is a real federal agency, it appears. Um, Renewable energy accounts for 11% of total energy consumption in the U.S. and about 17% of electricity generation. So we're talking about a very small amount. Still, you know, 89% of all the energy that we're coming that we're getting is coming from fossil fuels. Um, and so, you know, in order to switch to an entirely renewable energy uh, uh, system, you know, you're requiring uh, uh, 10xing our current system, which of course takes an enormity of resources to do. I mean, you just think about, uh, you know, every single gas station that's on, you know, almost every block of every major urban area and so on. Um, and, and the numerous other ways that we have to uh, transform our grid in order to do that. And so that takes a lot. And so we're going to need some really inventive innovative solutions to figuring out how we can do that. So let's talk now about how ubiquitous energy can be a part of that solution. So I know um, that the company has been around now for nearly a decade. Is that that's right, Susan? That's right. Yeah, I think the founding was in 2012. Um, So yeah, almost a decade developing this technology. And during that time, before we start getting into how the technology has evolved, how much money has the company raised? We've raised uh, just about $30 million so far, um, and that's from seed investors all the way through to um, we've, we completed our last equity financing was a Series A. Congratulations on that. And I, I believe that you got some money from the National Science Foundation uh, as well, correct? Oh, yeah. Support from the National Science Foundation and also support from uh, the California Energy Commission. We have a, oh, a grant with them and we've got a great relationship there. So we've we've gotten some nice support from um, a few government agencies, which has been always helpful. Right. And so it's helpful for other uh, potential entrepreneurs or other entrepreneurs to recognize that not all of the money that you have to, that you'll raise will necessarily be dilutive, that there may be grants from state or federal sources that are just given to you uh, because you're doing something cool. That's exactly right. And our experience with these agencies has been that they've been incredibly flexible in working with us to make sure that the grant, the plans around the grants push our business forward as much as they do the research and to really help us tailor the use of funds for those grants to make sure that it's exactly what we want to be doing to make sure that our product gets to market. So we've just had a great experience. Great. Well, let's talk about that product and when it might get to market. So conventional photovoltaics, they, they seem to harvest about a third of the sunlight that is hitting it. Um, you are making something that, as you say, is not opaque, but is actually a transparent uh, uh, and absorbing just the non-visible or non-visible to human light. So how much, uh, like what percent of that sunlight are you capturing? If conventional is 33%, what are you guys getting? Well, I think it's important to remember that conventional is about 33%. That's 
you know, we're talking about theoretical maximum. The panels that if you or I were to put solar panels, opaque conventional opaque solar panels at our homes, we're talking in kind of the low 20% for um, efficiency, the percentage of the sunlight that's being converted. Our theoretical Mm -hmm. maximums, because we avoid that spectrum that's visible to the human eye, our theoretical maximums are about half uh, where opaque solar is. There's Even though we're talking about only UV infrared and near infrared, there's quite a bit of power in those spectrums. So um, we we max out at, you know, kind of mid-teens, theoretically. Mm-hmm. Our best, currently our best performing solar cell has been verified um, at a third-party institution at 9.8%. So just under 10%. So okay. when you think about, you know, the, the panels, I just actually had solar spec'd out for, for my house here in Truckee. And the panels that they quoted us are uh, 21% as the, you know, kind of nameplate hmm. power conversion efficiency. So we're, yeah. we're getting there. <laughs> cool. What company are you, are you deciding to go with for your own house? Um, it's a, we're working with an installer here, um, a local installer, which for us is is really really valuable because they can really put the whole package together, and we we're interested in in Tesla Powerwalls, and they know how to work with Tesla Powerwalls, so that's uh, that's a big part of it for us. So you're not doing just panels; you you want to do the battery storage too. And we want storage too. I mean, look, I live in this world where for we we work with this problem every day, right? We create power via our transparent solar. We create power at windows. And then what are you going to do with it? I mean, mm-hmm. the the sun isn't shining all day, every day, and we need to store power. So storage is on my mind pretty frequently. So I don't think, right. I, I don't think I'd right. put in solar without storage. And, and living in Northern California where, uh, you know, utility shutoffs to prevent wildfires seem, are seemingly only going to become more and more frequent, it probably is a good idea to have uh, to have that battery storage also. There is that side benefit. You're right. So uh, let's talk about then, you, you say it's about uh, capturing about half of the power, so to speak, of the sun as a conventional, but the ability, like the surface area where you can put these is much, much greater than double, right? So if you think about, let's say, like a skyscraper building, uh, how like if you compare how many solar panels you can fit on the roof compared to having all of the windows that are on the side of the building capturing energy, you're talking about something that is, uh, you know, orders of magnitude greater in terms of the power captured, right? Exactly. And especially as we think about building in cities where we're building vertically and the rooftop area is so much smaller than the glazed area on the uh, walls of the building, we did a quick analysis on Salesforce Tower and we calculated that if you glazed all of the glass on Salesforce Tower in San Francisco, you have 700 times the surface area that you would have available to you for rooftop solar. And wow. we would never suggest that someone avoid rooftop solar and just use solar glass and use ubiquitous energy's product because they're complementary solutions and they should work together. Mm-hmm. So it you know you should think of it as 700x a surface area for glass plus the rooftop space available to use for opaque solar. That's really cool. That's really cool. So you're talking Susan about this being a glaze. So help me understand this is something you're putting on the exterior of glass. You don't have to be there at the moment of the glass fabrication and put it like somehow inside of the glass, right? We actually do. So when you think about the way that glass is manufactured, um, it's a it's quite a long supply chain from when the actual that 
flat piece of glass is made to when it gets put into a window construction. And what where we like to be is right after the glass is made, we coat the glass, we call the glass our substrate because by the way, we can talk about this later, we don't have to coat glass, we can coat other substrates. Right now we're coating glass. We put a coating on the glass um, that is very, very thin. I mean, we're talking about nanometers thick. Um, it's very similar to the way that that glass is already typically coated. Most glass that goes into windows today is coated with a low emissivity coating. People call it low E coating, which helps to reject the energy that the sun is producing, redu reduce the solar heat gain that comes into your home from the sun. That's already being put on glass. Our coating is applied in a really similar way and in the same place within the supply chain. So we coat the glass and then it's constructed into those double paned glass units that we think of as windows. And we like to be on the inside there. So we're on the inside of the exterior piece of glass in most product constructions. Got it. So really, it's not, it's really like if you're going to take the Salesforce building as an example, they would have to replace all of their windows in order to accomplish what we were just talking about. Yes, that's absolutely right. In a, in a commercial construction uh, framework, we are the, we're a great fit for new buildings. It's Got a, it. more of a challenge for retrofit, which is not to say that, uh, you know, building owners won't do it. Uh, quite a bit of the building stock here in the U.S. and around the world is still single panel monolithic glass, even for some of these bigger skyscrapers. And there's a real opportunity if those buildings are going to be reglazed anyway, to reglaze them with ubiquitous glass. Um, it's, mm. we, we need wires, right? We're, we're producing power, so the power has to go somewhere. And so we, our wiring needs to take that power out of the glass facade or the window unit um, and feed it into the balance of systems, into the storage like we've been talking about or back into the grid. Um, hmm. So it's, it's less of a, a retrofit product for commercial um, than it is a new build product. Now we do have some residential okay. products that we're um, that we're working on and that we're hoping to launch here really soon. And those are the opposite. Uh, those products we use the power right at the window, and so we're able to enable some really interesting functions right there at the window wirelessly. We produce and store the power right there at the window, and it's installed just like a window would be if you needed to replace one of your windows in your home. No electrician, no absolutely no different than installing just a, a new window because you got a crack or your seal broke or you're just ready for something different. So for residential, we're a retrofit product, but for commercial, uh, it's a better fit for a for new build, at least to start. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's uh, very interesting to me, especially as a homeowner. But let me just ask you then, Susan. So if I'm, let's say, a commercial property owner and I'm you know, going to build a building and I'm thinking about getting ubiquitous energy glass on there, am I going to be paying more than I would for, um, for conventional glass? And if so, is that offset by the energy savings I'm going to enjoy later? Yes and yes. Um, our our product adds about 30% to the cost of the glass. And the, the glazing is a, a big component to building costs. So it is not without cost, but it's not 2X, 3X, 5X. I mean, it is 30% uh, cost uh, on the high end. That can be offset by tax credits, uh, depending on your location. 
there are tax credits available, as you know, for renewable energy. Um, and instead of having passive glass that doesn't do anything for you other than allow you to see the world around you, we are producing electricity. So you get a payback from the electricity. Um, the building location, size, all of those things really drive the payback period. Um, but we just ran two uh, energy simulation models for two buildings in Asia, and we were yielding payback periods of anywhere between two and a half and four years. So I think those are pretty compelling economics. Sure. So just to be clear, it's two and a half to four years after the new building is is up and running, you have total payback and then everything else is just basic profit after that. That's right. Then you've paid right. back the you've paid back the incremental cost of having added our right. technology to your glazing and now you're just enjoying the free electricity. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty short time, uh, two to four years. It doesn't seem like that long to recoup the costs of something that will provide you with so many benefits. And frankly, that has such environmental benefit too. We agree. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. So where are these glass, uh, where, where is this being used right now? Um, I read that your office, your headquarters is using this. Is that right? We are. Our, we have an installation, which was the very first installation at our office in Redwood City, which once we're through our COVID purple tier, hopefully you'll come and see us. I'd love to show you that in person. Um, we Right now, what we do with that installation is we power our lights in our conference room. Um, that's We power a battery that powers our lights in our conference room. Because one of the things that we've found when talking to really anyone about this technology is the, the first question that people ask is, what, what should I do with the electricity? What how much power can you produce and what will it do? And so being able to really link, what are we powering? We're not just feeding back into the grid. It's not a, a numbers game. What are we powering? We're powering our lights in our conference room with our facade. Um, we also have an installation in Toledo, Ohio at the research center for Pilkington, which is one of the primary glass manufacturers, one of the largest in the world. They have an installation at their place, uh, which we put cool. in, in the first half and we're getting some really interesting data off that. They're, they've been a great partner to us. And so we, we've been working with them to gather data and, and track the performance of that facade. So those are our two biggest installations so far. And that probably gives you a sense for, for where we are here in the process. We have a prototype manufacturing facility in Redwood City that makes our prototype windows. Those are 14 inch by 20 inch panels. That's currently our size. And we are just gearing up right now to go into manufacturing mode. So we're going to have a really busy 2021 as we go out and raise some capital and do the completion of our planning activities so that we can hopefully break ground on our first manufacturing facility in early 2022. Oh, that's exciting. Well, I'll, I'll have to talk with my wife about what size our windows are to see a 14 by 20 is going to be compatible to be one of your first customers here. So Susan, if the glass is capturing some of the light that is coming from the sun, if I have plants indoors that are accustomed to getting light through the glass, presumably all of the sun's rays, I would presume, uh, are they going to suffer? Are they missing anything out? Like if they're not getting infrared um, or, or UV light uh, exposed to their leaves? Well, the short answer, Paul, is no. And and I think we, we mentioned earlier that what we harvest is what's non-visible to the human eye. I think it's a really interesting thing to think that's just visible to humans. So what does plant vision look like? And what is what 
what pieces of the spectrum are important to plants. And I dug into this a little bit because when you and I spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago, just for a little prep session, you asked me this question and my, my answer was pretty rudimentary to start, which is to tell you most windows, as we said before, they have that low E coating, which is rejecting a lot of the infrared and UV light anyway. So it, there's basically no change between our windows and what you think of as a typical modern window. But I decided to dig a little bit deeper one of our co-founders is a professor at Michigan State. His name is Richard Lunt, and he and his team are doing work using our panels um, amongst a few other um, experiments that they're running to learn more about plant vision and to learn about how we can tune our formulations at Ubiquitous. Our formulations are tunable to capture different pieces of that spectrum. Um, how can we tune those to not just be more beneficial to plants and not take away spectrum that they need, but could we tune them to encourage growth? And so we could even envision in the future being able to enable dual-use land where plants are growing underneath a solar array that allows exactly the right spectrum to pass through in order to encourage those plants to grow while using the balance to harvest electricity. So. Mm. Stay tuned on that. Richard and his team are doing a lot of work on plant vision so that we can learn how much of that spectrum do the plants really need and which pieces are important to them. And are there pieces of the spectrum that we could block that could even help plants, um, you know, provide a little sunscreen for plants or sunglasses for them <laughs> for the pieces of the spectrum that don't quite work as well for them? Wow. All right. So we're going to improve upon evolution here and, uh, and, and create some type of a filter that's going to make plants even more productive, which would also be a, a great gain to get uh, increasing agricultural productivity from each acre of land. So we have to farm less land. So that would it's be pretty possible. amazing uh, to, it's to, to happen. So, all right, I, I'm going to, I'm going to keep looking uh, for that announcement. <laughs> In addition to Windows, you mentioned you can you can put this on other um, other devices. I have a very old iPhone that runs out of energy almost immediately upon using it when it's not plugged in. Can I put this on my iPhone screen as well? <laughs> Someday you might be able to. I mean, mobile phones are so <laughs> interesting, right? They're they're such power hogs, and the screens are really important to us. But let's also think about the use case. I think one of the one of the things that for me is fundamental about getting new technology adopted is we can't ask people to change their behavior or we really shouldn't if we want it to be widely adopted. And I would ask you how right. often your iPhone is in your pocket um, and how often it's actually exposed to sunlight, which solar might not be the best solution mm -hmm. for extending battery life for, for mobile phones. Um, but the good news is we can do it. And if it, if it is a good solution and if the use case makes sense, we can absolutely do it. Um, I think one of the things that's really important for consumer electronics is very high transparency to be appropriate in these display stacks. And, and that's something that we can offer. So we don't have a current project for your iPhone yet, uh, but don't count us out. I'll keep it plugged in for now. But uh, what about the light that's just coming from the ceiling of the room that I'm in? I mean, obviously, it's different from sunlight. But is anyone out there, even if you're not, is anyone out there working on harvesting any of that energy? We harvest it today. Um, mm. You know, light is light. We harvest it today. It's not as powerful as the sunlight. And I think it's really, it's just about the math. You know, how much surface area does that 
piece of glass or, or substrate have? How often does it see light? And does that have a meaningful offset to the battery drain? Um, mm. And I, I think, you know, mobile phones are a pretty unique case. We really, we carry around virtually supercomputers in our pockets um, and they, they just really have a, a pretty intense power draw. So it, we're, I think the best way to answer it is that we're working on it, um, but I, I still don't think we're a great solution for mobile phones today. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I will leave mobile phones to rest then, but aside from glass, what other surfaces are there that you think would benefit from this that are being, you know, presumably outside and constantly exposed to the sun? Sure. Well, I mean, we're really focused on building products right now. Uh, and that's because we're, our first products are in Windows. And I would say I, I really love what Tesla is doing with their solar roofs because it's a truly integrated product rather than having a roof that then has to have solar on the top. Um, we can, we don't currently, but we can uh, coat other substrates make them transparent. So if you think about a flexible substrate, for example, that could be applied on top of roofing material, on your existing roofing material, uh, or on current roofing materials, um, that could replace opaque solar panels on the roof. So that's something hmm. that is, you know, kind of deep, deep pipeline for us, um, but really interesting, and I think could help solve some of the problems of put, having... Um, you know, very heavy solar arrays on mm -hmm. residential roofs. So that's, that's what I'm thinking about when we, you know, when we talk about coding other substrates. Um, I, you know, I would like to go back to consumer electronics for a second. We talked about iPhones, mobile phones uh, as a unique case. There are plenty of other consumer electronics devices that could really benefit from solar, transparent solar. And, you know, one of them is, an Amazon Kindle, that's a very low power draw device. So we mm -hmm. could take that off the grid today. Um, that would be really easy for us to take off the grid. So I think it's, uh, it's less about what would we coat and more about where are some really good use cases for transparent solar. We're making yeah. that electricity in an aesthetically beautiful, invisible way is... Hmm. Uh, a good value proposition. That's very cool. Um, I, I have a um, a bird bath to bring it back to birds here. I have a bird bath uh, that is like hooked up to one solar panel that's probably like six inches by six inches. So when it's when it's sun is shining on it, the bird bath is like more like a fountain. Um, but maybe there's something in like home and garden use as well for you there, whether it's bird baths or other things that are outside that could be uh, that could benefit from having something like that too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the most fun things about what we do is that there are so many potential use cases and our technology just captures people's imagination. And so literally, had I thought about bird baths? Absolutely not. And every single time <laughs> I talk to someone about what we do, there's another new and really interesting idea of how we could apply this technology. And that's just super exciting. 
Yeah. So just briefly, you know, the, most people listening probably are, are not really uh, familiar, and I know certainly I'm not, with the type of technology that you're talking about here. I mean, you're, you said you're talking like in, in nanoscale, right? And I, I think that the film that you're applying here, it's like less than one one thousand, less than one 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 thousandth of a millimeter thick, right? I mean, we're That's talking right. about something so small. So, so like what type of people have the expertise to be working at ubiquitous energy um, or these material scientists, like molecular biologists, like what is it that you need in order to work there to advance the science? Well, you got it right uh, with your first guess, uh, material scientists. We have a lot of material scientists on the team and that's at, at our core. That's what we do. We're a material science company. Um, organic chemists. We have quite a few people who come out of the solar industry we are currently uh, gearing up our electronics team because you make the power and then you've got to do something with it. Uh, so we have some electrical engineering expertise around the table. Uh, but, you know, really the core team and where that intellectual property is generated is with via our material scientists. We are hmm. engineering molecules to selectively absorb different spectra of the light. And so those folks are, you know, the real engine of the new discovery to help us push our aesthetics and to push our power conversion efficiency. But that's not your background, right? I mean, you are not a material scientist. You're not, not somebody even engineering. A bit. Yeah, you're you're not engineering <laughs> molecules, right? I mean, you are the CEO of Ubiquitous Energy, but you didn't start as the CEO. You're not a founder, right? You were a, a venture capitalist who invested in the company. That's right. I invested in the company's Series A and joined the board at that time. Um, that was back in the original Series A was back in 2014. Um, that's when I met these uh, this wonderful team. That was just to give you a sense. You've seen where we are now. Back when I invested, uh, the team was still borrowing time at MIT, you know, kind of like nights and weekends around the grad student schedule and making postage stamp size solar cells. So we've really come a long way. Um, and I no, I have virtually no um, science background and certainly no material <laughs> science background. Mine is yeah. mine is a business and investing background. So I'm, yes. uh, I'm the odd man out on the team, I would say. <laughs> so what happened? Uh, why, uh, how did you go from being an investor and a board member to now becoming the CEO? Like, when did you become the CEO? And I know the, the original CEO is still with the company. He's now the CTO, the chief technology officer. Um, but when and why did that, uh, did that take place? It really was. Well, it happened about a year ago. I just celebrated my one year anniversary at Ubiquitous. And, uh, I think it was, uh, from the VC standpoint, it, it felt like a classic battlefield promotion. Um, the the board needed at the time the the current CEO resigned, and the board needed someone to step into that guy's shoes, and that was me. Um, mm. It was as simple as I think being the right in the right place at exactly the right moment, um, and having had a long history with the company. I think. Uh, the relationships are not to be underestimated. I mean, this is a, a very, very tight-knit team that's been working together really closely for a long time. And there's uh, some real magic to having a team that works that well together. Uh, and so I think that was a, I mean, you'd have to ask the board exactly, but I think that was uh, a lot of why they selected <laughs> selected me to come in and, and lead this team. Um and yeah. yes, our, our founder, Miles Barr, is still with the company. He's our CTO and he is he he and I sit 
sit virtually right next to each other right now um, and work really well together. He's uh, super passionate about what we do and very, very big driver for our success. Got it. Okay. Well, that's a, a fascinating history, and it's always uh, intriguing to me how startups evolve in their leadership, and at what point uh, does a CEO who is also a founder, uh, you know, what point are they maybe not the best person to still be running the company, even if they founded it? Um, that's not to say that always happens, of course, but it seems like sometimes it does, or at least sometimes the, the VCs determine it. So, um, John Mackey, who is the uh, co-founder and, and still CEO of Whole Foods Market, was on this show and he had a really funny analogy where he said that uh, venture capitalists are, are kind of like hitchhikers with credit cards that you know, you let them in the car and it's awesome. They give you a credit card, they buy all of your food and your gas and everything else that you need. Um, but eventually, if they don't like the way that you're driving, uh, they'll kick you out and they'll take over the car <laughs> and uh, they'll start driving. And obviously, it doesn't sound like that's what happened in this case since uh, your CEO resigned and was, uh, you know, didn't uh, eject himself. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's always interesting uh, uh, to see when an investor becomes the CEO and uh, can help drive the company uh, forward in whatever new direction it's going to go in. Yeah, I think um, I love that analogy from John Mackey. I hadn't heard that before, and it's uh, it's so true. I, I, you know, I think in our case, the the fa- our founder had already exited the CEO seat, and there was uh, another gentleman in the had been CEO for most of uh, 2019 before I joined. And it it is still that it's the classic story, um, similar to what John Mackey's analogy brings up, I think we were as a company in a situation where it was time to make a big change in the orientation of the company. And I think for material science companies, especially there comes a transition from maturing your technology to really needing to commercialize it. And the, uh, you know, kind of beginning of 2019, that's when ubiquitous energy really was making that step and the management transition began. So it, it, it wasn't as, um, opportunistic as it might sound. It really was, you know, kind of well thought out by founders, board members, advisors, that it was time to start transitioning to a more commercially oriented management team. Yeah, I totally understood. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes not always, but sometimes scientists who found companies may not be the best uh, executive to actually lead the business, um, even if they're doing really cool science. Um, but of course, not not always the case. But speaking of cool businesses, so uh, obviously, Ubiquitous Energy is doing some really uh, great things to try to um, enable us to wean ourselves off of our addiction to fossil fuels. But let me ask you, Susan, are there any other company ideas? And as a VC and somebody who's involved uh, with a, a company like this that's trying to do good in the world, I'm sure you think about and have seen lots of other cool companies and ideas to solve serious problems in the world. Are there any other companies that you would like to see um, get formed or to advance something that would help solve a problem in the world, whether it's relating to energy or otherwise? Well, there are lots, of course. Um you know, I think if selfishly, because we're so focused again on the built environment and on um, on building materials, I would love to see technology companies sprout up to really help us as people living in our. And we're, I'll go back. Our with coronavirus, I think has really highlighted for all of us 
this aspect of spending more time at home, being more focused on the environment that we're in because we're forced to spend so much time in our personal environments. And I, I would love to see companies sprout up that really make those environments work for us. And some of that is, a, you know, in, within the framework of renewable energy. Um, what could you do if you had unlimited information about the interior and exterior of every building? How could buildings become more autonomous in managing their own responses to the environment? That is something that's really interesting to me. And I know there are a handful of folks thinking about it and, and you know, starting to tackle that. Um, but, you know, companies focused on really making our buildings work for us. Uh, that is fascinating to me. Um, and I think there's been a lot of noise lately. This is, you know, off the building materials topic, but there's been a lot of noise lately um, over the last couple of years about social media and, you know, some of how the digital media companies are selling us as a product. And I think we've, as a society and a culture, we've fallen into a little bit of a trap where we work for technology. And so that's a, a problem that I think I would love to see folks solve. And it's not a specific company that I'd like to see founded, but more of an orientation of technology should work for us rather than us working for technology. And when we spend our days posting on social media and sharing our lives with technology companies that then profit from it, it really feels like the opposite is happening. And so what, when I think about building new technologies and new products for the built environment, I take that framework with us. It shouldn't be work to have technology make our lives better. And so that's, um, that's really important to me. And I would just love to see that brought into the building environment. Um, we have some technology available to us in, in smart home, and that's a, a really, really quickly growing segment. Um, but but to me, there's not enough yet. And I'd love to see that more mainstreamed and just um, more functionality built into our homes that is obvious and easy and seamless. Yeah, I'm with you. I would, I too would love to see that. And I also would very much like to see the robots working for us rather than us working for them. So, uh, <laughs> Our robot know. overlords are not coming for yeah. us yet. We won't allow it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and then finally, Susan... Uh, you know, you have seen this from both sides of the table, right? Like you have been a VC investor in companies and now you are running your own startup as well. Are there any resources that have been helpful to you that you would recommend to others, whether they be books or speeches or anything else that you found useful or informational or inspirational that uh, you want to recommend to anybody else who wants to also try to use business to do some good in the world? Yes, absolutely. Um, there is... A book that I recommend to almost, I've recommended to almost every CEO in my portfolio, and it was recommended to me by a CEO that I invested with, um, who's who's become a, a really terrific peer and mentor to me, uh, called Play Bigger. Um, it is, a, I would say it's a blueprint for launching a new category. And a lot of the things that we want to do to change the world, like introduce transparent solar windows, are introducing new categories into the business world. And it's a really different thing than 
an incremental improvement on a product that already exists. So I just, I love it as a, a framework for how to launch a new category, how to how to form the language around a new category, and even how to create a culture within your company that uh, creates momentum around a new category. So I love Play Bigger, um, and I would recommend that to anyone and everyone who is thinking about starting a new business. Um, and then I'd, I'd love to uh, also recommend an article I read in Fast Company a couple of weeks ago, and I will find you the title. Um, it was an interview with the CMO of Electric, I think, and talking about hiring nice people and how to hire nice people. And I think that is something that gets lost frequently when we're thinking about how to scale businesses and how to get your startup off the ground. And there's this intense focus on performance. And I would posit that a group of well-connected, well-connected to each other, nice people within a culture where we're doing good for each other and for the world is a really, really powerful asset. And so this, uh, Mm. this article was not just making that point, but also giving specific interview um, questions to ask when you're doing your hiring to really suss out not cultural fit the way that you know VCs and startup entrepreneurs think about cultural fit is is this person going to sit at their desk and you know until the middle of the night but cultural fit like do these people that we're hiring share our ethics our values and our morals that and and would they fit into our culture in that respect and so i i think that is really cool and really powerful in building a company so um that's uh, that's something else that I would recommend. And now I'm checking my notes because I did write this down. It's called "Ask the Questions to Find Out If You're If You're Hiring a Good Human," and it was published in Fast Company. I'm going to say two weeks ago, and it, I've I've sent it to so many people because we don't talk about that enough. We don't talk about being nice people enough. Yes, it's a, a great suggestion. We'll certainly include a link to that Fast Company article um, in the show notes, along with a link to Play Bigger. Uh, the article came out on uh, November 13th, 2020, and it was written by a journalist named Andrea Kale. So we'll include her article there. It looks good. Ask these questions to find out if you're hiring a good human, not just a smart one. Of course, that presumes that the person asking the questions is also a good human, <laughs> which you hope, you hope that is the case. Um, not just the person who's being interviewed, but the interviewer as well. But uh, Susan Stone... Well, if they're not, they probably don't want to read that article, Paul. So that's probably the the threshold (laughs) question. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Well, I I hereby declare you as the host of this show to be a good human. And I'm glad that you are the one who is going to be asking those questions for future hires at Ubiquitous Energy. And I'm really grateful to you for what you're doing to, again, as I said, try to wean us off of our addiction to fossil fuels. It it couldn't be more urging and more urgent and more pressing uh, than what you're doing. So thank you so much. And I will be rooting for your success. And and looking forward to putting your solar glass uh, to work in my house so that I can continue to uh, read on, on my Kindle with, uh, with, with ease and without fossil fuels. So I appreciate it. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait to install our glass in your house in Sacramento. <laughs> I can't wait. All right. Thanks again, Susan. Thanks, Paul. 
Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.